0: Hello and welcome to Quilt Its Markets Uncut Podcast, your weekly insight into the topics and issues that we've been discussing here at Quilt It. Remember, so you don't miss future episodes, be sure to hit the follow button on whichever streaming platform you're listening on, or by following hashtag QC Weekly Comment on LinkedIn. I'm your host, Jack Bishop, Investment Manager based in our Manchester office, and this week I'm pleased to be joined by our regular podcast guest, Richard Carter, head of fixed interest research, and Will Howlett, one of our equity research analysts covering financials. Good morning to you both. Uh, Richard, turning to yourself first. So, we, coming back a few weeks actually now, we had some more positive inflation data out of the UK. And then last week, the Bank of England raised rates by a further 25 basis points, taking the base rate to 5.25%. And six of the members of the Monetary Policy Committee voted for that 25 basis points, two um voted for a 50 basis points rise, and one actually voting for no change. So sterling initially fell but regained some of that during the day, and guilt yields did drop slightly, particularly at the shorter end. Uh, so the governor of the Bank of England described the conditions for their monetary policy as restrictive. Um, but given the split in the vote there does seem to be some differences of opinion so what were your takeaways from the decision and do you think the bank of england will proceed with two further hikes by the year end as priced in by the market
1: yeah they're probably not and they're probably not quite done although let's hope that they, they, they are near to the um peak i mean i'm not really surprised that there was there's was a bit of a split of opinion i, I think if you think about it they've already raised rates, you know, pretty aggressively, five and a quarter, as you say. Uh, there are increasing concerns that, uh, you know, about the dangers of potentially over-tightening and tipping the economy into recession. So you could see why um, some members kind of want to err on the side of caution, but then at the same time, inflation still a little bit high for comfort. So I'm not surprised at this stage to see a bit of debate and probably, probably that's healthy. Um, but I think, um, you know... I I think, you know, going to your earlier question, I think, I think, yes, they've probably got a little bit of a way to go before they finish. Uh, Hopefully five and three quarters uh, will be enough. Maybe it'll be, you know, maybe even be a bit lower than that. But it doesn't sound like they're anywhere near uh, getting towards rate cuts uh, at the moment. I think it'll take a little bit of evidence that the economy is slowing uh, more than they expect before we see that because i think obviously if they keep rates at these levels uh, for some time it will potentially tip the economy uh, into a into a difficult situation you know given the pain pain on mortgages so hopefully as i say we won't be at these sort of level of rates uh, forever
0: That's great, thanks Richard. And just sticking with the topic of the Bank of England, so the former chair of the Federal Reserve, Ben Bernanke, has been appointed to review the Bank of England's forecasting model. Um, Things seem to have gone a little bit awry. So Bernanke was chair during the global financial crisis and in 2012 oversaw the introduction of the Fed's dot plot, which tracks um, the views of all of the Fed voting members and how they see interest rates panning out. So um could you just talk through what did actually go wrong with well so wrong with the bank of england's forecasting model and, and why does it need to be looked at well i guess that's up for bernanke to find out really
1: and i think he'll report his conclusions next year i mean i'm a bit suspicious of this uh, central bank's sort of you know if, uh, forecasting models have gone awry so they call in sort of the world's one of the world's most famous central bankers to sort it out i think uh uh, maybe they maybe they need more of an external view than, than uh, the sort of ex-chair of the Fed. We'll we'll see. I mean, I think the, the problem sometimes with these models is that they work they work nicely when you know it's a sort of calm and, and sort of predictable situation. And then, but the Bank of England's had to face, I, I guess, three main shocks that have completely tipped them and and to be fair, a lot of other people completely off balance. And that's um, you know, it's obviously sort of what happened with COVID and the sort of ramp up in QE. Uh you also had uh bre- you also had um uh, uh Brexit and then also the obviously the war in Ukraine. So I think it, they're not alone in and in, in having been completely caught out by this. Um and we'll see if um if Bernanke can get to the uh get to the bottom of it. But um yeah, as I say, a lot, a lot of people have been completely caught out by this rise in inflation.
0: Yeah, fair enough. They're not alone in that. Um And then further economic data out at the end of last week on Friday, we had the non-farm payrolls showing that employment in the US was a little bit weaker. So adding 187,000 jobs, consensus was at about 200 and we had previous months figures revised down. So dollar did weaken slightly and that helped sterling to recover some of the day's previous losses. And as we've highlighted um, quite a lot, the labour market has been quite resilient in the face of that tightening cycle from the Fed. And that's another data set which helps to support the soft landing narrative. So the next decision we won't have until the 21st of September, which means there will be more data along the way to help assess the impact of the policy tightening. So similar to the question regarding the Bank of England. So where does that leave the Fed now? Do we think that they are done? Yeah, there's a good good chance that they're done. I
1: mean, as you say, you know, these, these payroll numbers did play into the, uh currently kind of very popular soft landing narrative you know you've got inflation coming down uh it's only around about three percent now in the United states and, and some signs around the margin um that the labor market is weakening so yeah we'll see i mean perhaps they might have to do one more uh, i don't think it would completely de- derail markets or anything if they did end up doing another 25 basis points but uh hopefully that's it for now um and then it'll be a question of seeing you know how if the economy uh, weakens Uh, or if it proves to be a lot more resilient than people have been expecting. And, and, uh, you know, and and whatever happens with that will determine whether we get sort of interest rate cuts next year or or whether the Fed's on hold uh, for some time to come. But I think I think for now, um, even if they're not done, then, you know, the risk of sort of one more hike, as I say, is not exactly going to be a massive disaster for markets.
0: And just tying in again to the U.S., so somewhat out of the blue, uh, the ratings agency Fitch decided to downgrade the credit rating of the United States last week, citing the government's growing debt burden over the coming years, erosion of governance standards relating to the debt ceiling standoff we had earlier on in the year, and then highlighting the risk of recession from the Federal Reserve's policy tightening. So. Whilst it may grab headlines, do you think it's consequential and can you just talk us through maybe the market reaction and does it mean anything going forward?
1: Of itself, I wouldn't say, I mean, it was interesting, uh, but it was surprise to say of itself, I don't think it really matters that much in the sense that people will still buy US Treasuries, whether they're AAA or AA plus and, and it's, you know, people cast their minds back some time ago, S&P did the same thing um, some time ago. And, um, you know, US Treasuries are still extremely liquid and safe and, and people will continue to buy them. Um, but it does um, kind of speak to the kind of wider issue of, you know, rising deficit. They've got uh, much higher interest rate costs. Their tax take has been a bit disappointing. Um, Ageing population as means there be a lot more spending on uh, health and social security. So, there are some concerns, you know, w- what that will lead to, and and uh, obviously, if you were to see sticky inflation as well, potentially, you know, staying at sort of three plus, um, that could that could lead to higher U.S. Treasury yields. But um, I think I think for now it's more of a medium term concern rather than anything we should get too worried about at the moment. I think ultimately, you know, people will buy U.S. Treasuries even if even if the sort of, you know, the supply is is pretty high. Uh, in the short term, and I, and I think it ultimately yields will be affected more by what the Fed's doing and what you know inflation's doing, rather than you know what rating agencies are
0: saying. That's great, Richard. Thanks for all of that. Um, turning to you, Will, um, one sector that does benefit from a higher interest rate environment are banks. So we're in the midst of results season. We've had most of the major banks report from both sides of the Atlantic. However, one interesting thing does seem to be that there's that differential between the financial performance of the UK domestic banks, so the Lloyds and NatWests of this world, and then those that have significant Asian operations, so HSBC or Standard Chartered. So, can you just talk us through why you think we might be seeing those trends?
2: Yeah, morning. Yeah, we've just been through the second quarter results for the UK banks over the last few weeks. Um, And I think a big difference that we're seeing between the UK Asian banks and the UK domestic banks is around net interest margins. So net interest margins, the difference between what banks earn on their assets, so loans and securities, and what they pay on their liabilities, their depositors and um, other funding And so for both the UK Asian banks, HSBC, Standard Chartered, you saw net interest margins expand in the second quarter, Q on Q and year on year. But it's been a bit of a weaker message at the UK domestic banks. So both Lloyd's and NatWest margins still up significantly year on year, but down sequentially relative to the first quarter. You also saw both NatWest and Barclays guiding down on net interest margins for the full year. So there's a huge number of factors that can drive net interest margins but i think a key factor has been just the pressure that we've been seeing from the uk press politicians regulators for banks to pass on the rate hikes that have come through from central banks to their depositors so so that's good for savers um but bad for bank shareholders if i'm uh, generalizing i think the other Big difference that you've seen is that loan growth has been stronger at the UK Asian banks, whereas it's been pretty sluggish for the UK domestic banks. So, for example, look at uh, Lloyds, where the loan book shrank by one percent in the first half of the year. I think that's the you know the longest term story is better for the UK Asian banks. They've got stronger growth than the UK domestic banks, given the structural tailwind from Asian economies, you know, growing wealthier. I think at the moment as well, there's a lot of uncertainty around where the UK economy heads, given the inflation picture is worse and, you know, the debates around the Bank of England and and what they do with rates. So the UK economy kind of stagnating versus some better growth in some of the Asian economies means that, you know, loan growth will be better for the for the UK Asian banks. And that's all feeding through to earnings estimates. So they're going higher for the UK Asian banks and there's been a little bit of pressure for the UK domestic uh, banks as well. So where earnings estimates go does tend to to feed through to share prices. And that's certainly what we've been seeing over the last month or two.
0: That's great, really helpful. Um, We'll try and put that into context and explain the differential. And then another area of financials under your coverage is the alternative investment uh, asset managers So just to give us a bit of a background as to what those companies do and maybe some examples. And again, linking into the recent results we've seen from the subsector, it does seem that despite there being quite attractive rates available on kind of bonds, cash and cash equivalents, fundraising by these companies has proved quite resilient. So can you just try and explain why that might be?
2: Yes, if you think of the traditional asset managers, you know your typical long only equity fixed income managers investing in public markets, the alternative managers that's kind of an all encompassing term to capture just about everything else um so within my coverage, I look at the fund managers that invest in private equity, for example, or private debt um so there's companies like intermediate capital. Um, partners in, in Switzerland, Aries in the US. As with any fund manager, it's all about delivering investment performance. So in the case of private equity, you know a manager will buy out a business and then look to grow earnings and eventually sell the business to realise a return. So they might look to grow earnings by making the business more international or adding scale through an M&A strategy. And typically, these alternative managers will raise long-term funds, so it might be, say, a 10-year fund, and the institutions that provide the capital for these funds, so think of pension funds and sovereign wealth funds, for example, are then locked in for the duration of that fund. So there's no redemption risk, which is, you know, one of the reasons I like the um, the alternative managers. To your question on fundraising, it has held up um, more so in some areas. So private debt is doing well private debt is often used as the financing between uh, behind private equity deals and crucially here lending is done at floating rate and so you're seeing better returns as interest rates have moved higher so quickly it's also higher up the capital stack relative to equity and so it should be more defensive in any sort of downturn because you've got that um, uh, you know superior place in the capital stack. Um, Private equity has been a bit more mixed so certainly last year there was what was called the denominator effect so private market valuations had held up better than public markets so that meant naturally institutions allocations had increased to private equity and then institutions weren't willing to increase that further and this year you've seen M&A slowing down as well so deal flow has been that much weaker and so there's just been less recycling of capital so private equity managers being able to sell sell assets and then you know recycle that capital to to support future fundraising um, so it's a little bit more of a mixed message in private equity but still holding up quite nicely on private debt
0: that's great thank you very much Will, and thank you to Richard um, for both of your insights and to all of you for listening did you enjoy our discussion on the podcast today? We'd love to hear from our listeners so please review the show now wherever you're listening and share it on your socials and tag us at Quilt Cheviet. To make sure you don't miss a future episode tap the subscribe button and we'll be back next week. In the meantime head over to our website www.quiltcheviot.com where you can read the accompanying market overview as well as subscribe to our weekly comment newsletter You can stay up to date with our thoughts on market news, industry insights and our upcoming events and webinars on our websites or on our social media pages. And finally, if you have any questions you'd like to ask one of our experts, simply ask them via our weekly comments page on our website. We'd love to hear from you. And that's it from today. So thank you, Richard and to Will for your time and to all of you for listening. See you next time.